Welcome to Fundraising Stories with Female Founders. I'm Julia Elliott-Brown, the founder and CEO of Enter the Arena. I'm a serial entrepreneur and an expert in raising investment and business growth. Our mission at Enter the Arena is to empower female founders to fly through pre-raise and investment and onto the exponential growth of their business with investment expertise and business coaching. Here we share the stories of inspirational female founders who've raised investment to inspire you to do the same. You'll hear their honest accounts of what it was really like to secure funding, the highs, the lows and the challenges they experienced on the journey. And along the way, we'll discuss top tips for how you can be successful too. So today I'm speaking with Sophie Barron, the founder of Mama Made, providing nutritious homemade baby meals directly to your door. A native New Yorker, Sophie worked at Vogue before moving to London, where she graduated from the London School of Economics with a master's and also a PhD. Sophie then went on to work as head of operations for a tech company in the employee benefit space in London. But it was after Sophie had a baby and went back to work that she struggled transitioning into a new role of working mum and also struggled to find baby food that was good enough or really spoke to her on a brand level. So Sophie founded Mama Made in March 2019 to fill the gap in the market that she'd spotted. And just 18 months later, in September 2020, Sophie secured a seed funding round of £300,000 from angel investors to help her grow the business on a valuation of £1.5 million. And her ultimate ambition is to build Mama Made into the leading parenting brand for modern parents. So let's meet Sophie and find out all about how she raised the money, the challenges she faced and all the key things she learned along the way. So welcome, Sophie. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure to see you. I'm sure you've, you'll run off your feet building your business and <laughs> being a mum. So I'm, I'm really pleased that you could give us your time today. So it's not that long since you set, long ago since you set the business up. Um, and wow, doing that when you were a new mum, which must have been quite challenging. Tell us what it was like in the early days when you first had the idea and, and wanted to get it off the ground. Yeah, I mean, I would say it was about a full year between the idea and actually getting it off the ground. Um, so that's the first thing. <laughs> I think um, I definitely didn't think of it necessarily as a business as such in the beginning. It was really just um, wanting this product for myself, um, just getting feedback from other parents that I was spending time with, kind of where they're, am I the only one feeling this way, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I was still in my day job, so to speak. I mean, I was really carrying on kind of life as usual, just this idea for Mama Made kind of working in the background until finally yeah, March 2019 just like all right let's do it <laughs> let's do it. let's go for it and even then I carried on working at my day job until about August um so I definitely yeah there was definitely a long period of that sort of gestation so to speak mm. of the idea and until really launching it and even then once launching it really having the confidence to treat it as a, as a real thing with real potential yeah, but it's good to have that period, isn't it, where you're just kind of letting it ruminate in your head and, and doing a bit of research. And I mean, what, what, so what, what was it really about um, baby food, the baby food that you saw out on the market that wasn't doing it for you? I mean, at the time, this was March 2018. So my daughter was six months old at the time. And my options were either to cook everything myself or to go to the supermarket shelves where these purees and pouches are in jars 
And there were a couple of things about those that I didn't particularly like um, and wasn't, you know, I was sort of seeing them as fast food in a way of, you know, as a time and a place and they're handy, but to actually build that as, you know, your child's diet seemed a bit extreme um, for the most part, because you don't know what's in there. Um, you're taking the label's word for it. Um, so I didn't have any control over what was, what was inside. Um, the lifetime of the products as well. So the fact that they had been heat processed in order to keep their stability on the shelf. Um, again, very convenient, but would you really want to serve that for every meal? And um, I was really looking for something that would help me go most of the way for most meals rather than that kind of one-off convenience product. Um, and that's, that's where the idea of Mama Made came. It was that I want to be home cooking. I want to be doing everything right, but I also don't want to be doing everything. Yeah, <laughs> so I, mean, I, I remember when I was, when my kids were little, I just have m massive memories of having huge pots of things that I was cooking and then putting them all into ice cube trays you know, and then freezing them. And it was just, it was so much work. It was so much work. Yeah, exactly. And I, I did that. I mean, I, as everyone says, you know, do the purees and then freeze them. And then, um, I don't know, my daughter was rejecting them or then they were very smooth, like very quickly. She seemed to want something to hold on to and to chew. So the purees, and again, that's why the supermarket purees didn't seem like the right product either is because they weren't really feeling the need, which was something with a more texture, something that would let her, yeah, basically be in control of her meal time. Um, and yeah, I just felt like there has to be a better way. It was 2018, sorry. And it just seemed crazy that the only options were the, these long life purees or as you know, you've experienced the kind of batch pureeing and freezing yourself. Yeah. Okay, brilliant. So you so you ruminated on the idea and you thought actually there is something in this and you decided to go for it. So so tell us about those early days when you started up the business. So you were still working part-time and then yeah. developing the product in your kitchen. What was, what was that like? Yeah, I guess I, it was that first year, I suppose, it was kind of just this hobby in a way of a kind of outlet for me that wasn't work, that wasn't parenting, that was something a bit creative for me to kind of use a different part of my mind. And it was, yeah, it was genuinely that. It was kind of playing around in the kitchen. It was speaking to friends who were nutritionists. It was um, then giving the product, you know, to other moms that I was hanging around. And um, yeah, I got a lot of like, oh, you're still doing that thing with the vegetables. And I think, <laughs> I think it was like, I probably had one too many of those comments. And I was like, actually, I want to do this seriously because people seem to be really receptive. Yeah. Um, that was a little bit the fire that kind of started everything yeah so when you when you sort of decided to go for it by that point had you decided then that this might be a business that you could make a lot bigger something that you could potentially scale yeah i definitely saw the opportunity i mean um being from america um i was aware of the market there um that there were some companies there that had um, managed to really disrupt the baby food market so to speak and understanding that you know UK parents aren't any fundamentally different I mean by maternity leave is a bit longer here and um, you do get a bit more support in terms of social services but the actual day-to-day -day of being a parent isn't any different so I think I did begin to understand especially as I got feedback from you know friends and friends of friends about what I was doing that there was a real opportunity here mm -hmm. um, and that was really just a shift in myself to kind of say you know what let's do this seriously let's I don't really want this to just be something I'm doing for my kitchen anymore. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's a, yeah. Limit, there's a limit to how much you can do in your own kitchen. <laughs> kids running around as well. So. Yeah. Um, okay. So 
so so the first sort of year year and a half you were kind of doing this all by yourself I guess bootstrapping the business exactly yeah I mean um I'm very lucky to have a very supportive partner in life who was just letting me kind of you know explore this creative side um at the same time I was working so I was um making a bit of money that way and then just really putting whatever I could into Mama Made, but it was, I mean, extremely, extremely bootstrapped. I mean, the amount of money that I was putting, it was almost nothing. Um, it was just my time. Yeah. So those early days, what did you, what were the key things that you had to spend money on to get the business up and running? At its very earliest, it was that sort of raw stock. So I remember we bought two big freezers and a whole lot of, um, yeah, just ingredients basically. And I turned to my husband, I was like, well, you know, no one buys it. We'll eat the vegetables and we'll sell the freezers and we'll be fine. So that it was quite low overhead to start, you know, basic things like setting up a Shopify website, but it's amazing what you can do with nothing. And this business grew on Instagram, which is an amazing free marketing tool at the end of the day. So um, yeah, it's probably just the ingredients, the freezers and my time. And so, so Instagram was a key channel for you. So was it, did you have to do any paid advertising on Instagram or was it all referrals, word of mouth? It was all organically grown on Instagram. Um, we've done several spurts of ads. And of course, now that we're post-raise, we're doing more, stre- longer stretches. Um, <clears throat> but up until this point, it's been, yeah, pretty much just people finding us organically, um, word of mouth, um, the content that we're generating, and yeah, it definitely is a tool that what you put in, you can, you can see things coming out. So yeah. yeah again, what, about, what about all the packaging and the branding? Did you have to invest in that in the early days too? So the branding, I actually, very earliest iteration of the branding, I just used a friend actually in New York to do the logo, um, a bit of designing your own color schemes. And then it was, it was me uh, making, you know, all the labels and, and yeah, buying the labels and the packaging, the pra- I mean, but that, you know, relatively negligible costs um and just trying to get it up there i think that was a big lesson that i learned from my my husband in particular who's a sort of entrepreneur himself who was like you just if you are going to do this just do it don't let perfection be kind of the enemy of progress (laughs) as they say just get it out um get feedback get the product into as many people's hands as you can and then you can always reiterate and and refine which is what we've been doing since excellent approach so very very much a lean startup get it out there see what people think tweak and tweak and refine as you go forward yeah which is still very much how we're operating um i really i see the fruits of that like it's just getting it out there just not being afraid to to do something a bit imperfectly or very imperfectly okay brilliant so off to a good start so what at what point did you think to yourself right I need to go out and get some extra funding for this business if I'm going to take it anywhere. So I definitely think there were several sort of phases. I I feel like in a way I was kind of a girl who cried fundraising because (laughs) in the very beginning I thought, okay, I want to make a real business out of this. I need to raise money. And there was that feeling of, I need that belt. It was almost really for validation more than actually needing the cash. It was that kind of, I'm doing a business, let me raise capital and, and go for it that way. And so I would say I had a few like false starts with fundraising um, and each time just coming back to that question of like, well, what am I actually doing and what can I actually show for it? And um, I think it was just this realization of let me keep growing this in that kind of lean way that we've been doing. Um, 
get it to a point where there's an actual business where I've got customers who, you know, a, a big number of customers who love what we're doing and, and then raise money at a higher valuation than I would have been able to. Um, really, so it's a really interesting point you make there, actually. I think it's an easy trap for founders to fall into thinking, right, I need to raise money from at the start. And it's quite hard, isn't it, when you don't have any proof of product to market fit? Yeah, and I, I didn't really know enough about my business to speak really knowledgeably about it. I didn't realize that at the time, but I didn't know enough about my customers. I didn't know enough about the product and where it could go and, and the amount of learning that I gained in the kind of year between that kind of initial, oh, I need to fundraise, and then the actual fundraise that we've done now um, was a tremendous period of not only growth, but yeah, personal growth and personal development and learning. Um, so I'm definitely now a big proponent of kind of keeping it off as long as you can. Um, and it just got to a point where in order to achieve what we needed to, um, especially as a product-led business, so in order to actually scale the business we needed money, um, then that's when we started raising. Okay, brilliant. So, by the, so when you started raising, were you still running it from home pretty much? No, at that point we'd managed to move out into a kitchen, but um, the capacity was really small. Um, and yeah, it got to a point where it's like, you know, you're signing a three month minimum, you got like a minimum contract on the space and the deposit and then the freezers and the equipment, all of a sudden it's a huge mm -hmm. amount of money going out the door. Yeah. Um, and that's just to service the customers that you have. <laughs> so um, I think that was just the moment when it was like, all right, you know, there's bootstrapping and there's just kind of putting too much of my own capital at, at mm -hmm. risk. So that was, um, that was when we decided to, to really raise money and it was relatively quick once we decided. Yeah, it was quick. So let's, let's talk about your fundraise because, um, I mean, first of all, genius timing. Let's talk about the time <laughs> of your raise. Yeah, probably. <laughs> you decided to raise. <laughs> we started to raise during lockdown. Um, so we only met a handful of our investors in person. Um, still only have Zoom relationships with some of our investors. Um, yeah, we started just because lockdown was actually a huge period of growth for us. And I think that was a real moment of, of seeing the kind of opportunity as well. Um, and again, coming to that critical need for cash to keep, to keep the business going. Um, so yeah, we, it started just with people that had been very supportive of me from the beginning. So for instance, um, my previous bosses who had, um, really incubated the idea of Mama May, who had allowed me to kind of work on this as a side project whilst I was working for them. Um, they were my first approach and yeah, just really trying to meet as many people as possible. In a way, maybe all these Zoom calls made it quicker because there wasn't any travel time. <laughs> That's right. It's so efficient, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's interesting. I mean, you know, obviously I'm a fundraising coach and I've always taught entrepreneurs to do it online if you can. And it's been incredible how much resistance there's been to that until now. Everyone's like, okay, now we're going to do it online. Because it really works, doesn't it? No more faffing about on no. and travel. And I just keep thinking how many meetings we would have had in person in order to get things over the line. Yeah. I mean, because people yeah. love in person. <laughs> <laughs> started with your bosses. I think that's a brilliant place to start because, I mean, if anybody knows how good you are at, 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 at you know, making things happen at work, it's going to be people who've worked with you in the past. So great place to start. Yeah, I was a bit hesitant, but yeah. Why were you hesitant? Um, I think it's I think it's quite a gendered thing. I think um, and it's something that I've loved hearing kind of other 
you know, people you've had on your show kind of discuss, but there's this element when you're fundraising and you're asking for something and it's not always a natural thing. It, it was almost like asking for a raise times, you know, a hundred is <laughs> way more nerve wracking. Um, and obviously there's an opportunity for them in this, um, which is what you really have to be communicating. But yeah, I would say it's just that, that same feeling you get in your chest of like, oh, I'm going to ask for more money now. <laughs> How will they react? I'm sort of, I'm slightly encouraged to, obviously as a native New Yorker, I mean, I'm encouraged to know that it's not just us British women who feel like that. <laughs> I always thought Americans were much more, you know, we're all the same inside really. Aren't we? Absolutely. Yeah. So previous bosses, so, so who else did you reach out to? I want to know who you reached out to, how you did it, and I want to know how many meetings you think you had in total. Oh gosh. I mean, I, to be fair, I had spent the whole, that whole year of developing non-made or since March 2019 of launching. Um, I had been spending quite a lot of time meeting with people in that kind of startup ecosystem um, that exists. Um, so um, I was very fortunate to be a part of the Huckletree Alpha program, which is a mentorship program, which was brilliant. Um, I had done a pitch day at the Albright. Um, so I had been sort of putting feelers out and trying to to be as present kind of within that world as possible. Um, and then, yeah, when actually opening up the fundraise and actually asking for money, just going back to those people and, and letting them know and getting the deck sent around. Um, and just genuinely asking everyone to send it on to anyone who might be interested. Um, if someone came back saying not for them, saying, okay, fine, but who, you know, who do you know who it could be for? Yeah. Um, so I think always, getting to that point where someone would say no it's not for them is always a really good learning opportunity to kind of say okay so if it's not for you why and then who who would it be for or, you know how can we make this then more um an attractive opportunity for you what conditions would have to be met mm -hmm. um so yeah i guess it was just a lot of conversations <laughs> a lot of conversations but i was trying putting your fingers out in the whole network were you, were you networking with people in your so as well as the startup scene, which not everybody is that plugged into, especially if they're not in London necessarily. Right. Um, were you networking with people in your industry, in your market sector? Um, you know, less in my market sector, I would say, than actually just even personal. So um, that was something that we were quite hesitant to do in the beginning, but then felt more and more natural to kind of go to personal contacts and say, um, you know, I don't want to raise from a friend, but do you know people who might be interested in this opportunity? And I think understanding that in a lot of ways, the fundraise is just a matter of, it's a, you know, it's a conversion rate. <laughs> it's, a, it's a numbers game. You just have to get a certain number of people into the funnel to then be able to convert them into potential, you know, down the line. So um, it became a game of just kind of how many people can see my deck, how many people <laughs> can, I, can actually look at this and can I answer their questions? And um, so it was tapping into personal network probably more than in the market. Um, and being really open also with people who are, let's say, working at VCs or um, at some of these funds and, and saying, you know, we're not ready for institutional money, um, but who do you know who would be interested in this size? Um, kind of investment. So definitely not being shy to approach investors that I knew weren't right for us yeah. at this stage. Yeah. And it's, it's, a, it's a kind of 
it can be quite a nice way in, isn't it? So rather than feeling like you're asking direct, you're asking people who they might know. So it feels less pushy. But yeah. actually, if they're interested, sometimes that might mean, you know, well, hang on a minute, I might be interested. Well, that is the funny psychology part of it that I didn't, didn't really anticipate, because genuinely, I didn't want to raise from friends and family, really. Um, but just by saying, I, don't, I know it's not for you, or like, I don't want you to invest, all of a sudden, someone's like, wait, but maybe I do. <laughs> maybe I want to learn more. Yeah. Well, there's something in that about almost um, withdrawing the opportunity from someone that makes them want it even more. Hang on a minute, what? <laughs> yeah. It definitely, um, that was, that was a kind of a nice perk to see happen. Um, yeah. but I mean, genuinely from the outset, I, I felt quite strongly about not putting any, any personal contacts, um, cause it is capital at risk and as confident as we are in the kind of business and where it's going. Mm. Um, I only wanted to approach people who were sort of seasoned investors or, or have experience making this sort of seed round investments. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's right. You don't want people who don't understand the risk fully. Um, and friends and family may well do, but you have to really spell it out to them sometimes. <laughs> That's interesting. Okay, so I mean, any idea? So you so you started in the middle of lockdown, and you actually closed your round within three months, which is fantastic. And that, yeah. That's what that's what all founders should be aiming for because if it's any longer than that, it's sucking up all of your time and energy, and you know you've got better things to be doing than fundraising most of the time. Yeah, it definitely becomes a full-time job. And then you do begin to feel like, you know, you don't want it to get stale. Like you don't want it to seem like things aren't moving and because that's just not as attractive <laughs> to an investor either. Um, so we definitely wanted to keep the pace up. I guess in terms of numbers, to answer that question, I mean, we had probably hundreds of people look at the deck. Um, I don't know, maybe it was between 20 and 30 actual like productive zoom conversations yeah and then we've got i think in the end it's about i mean between 10 and 15 investors yeah okay and actually that those are very typical kind of conversion rates it's pretty standard to, to have to, to need to have maybe 20 to 30 meetings to get around done so um I think it's really helpful for people to understand that, you know, sometimes I work with founders and they've had five meetings and they've had nobody say yes and they find it very soul destroying. And it's like, well, you know, it's typical that you might need a lot more. So, Yeah. It's definitely hard though. Like, I mean, towards the end, we got a lot more yeses a lot quicker because, you know, people start to see that the round is filling up. It's those first few that are the hardest. First few. So, so did you have somebody who was a lead investor in that bunch? The first few that came in? Um, no, we, we didn't have a lead investor at that stage. It was, it was more like contacts and then friends of friends. Um, and then, yeah, as we got towards the end of, of the round and kind of word was getting out a bit more about this raise, then we were able to close a lot quicker. Um, we also did set a really firm deadline. Um, so we knew that we needed to close at whatever we were going to close at. Um, and that was partly because we just needed the money. So we needed to just get the funds in. And then, yeah, as you were saying, we didn't want it to drag out. So we kind of made, at one point I thought we'd be closing at like a hundred. <laughs> so the fact that we closed at almost three times that um, was a nice surprise, but we we had a deadline that was like, we were giving people. Yeah, and that, that just is so focused to do that. And it creates that sort of fear of missing out from investors, doesn't it? They're kind of like, oh, I need to get in there quick because I'm going to miss out on the opportunity yeah <laughs> fantastic well done amazing so so 
you mentioned kind of it was all about having having enough meetings with the right kind of people but also then being able to deal with their questions as you went along so what what were the kind of key questions that people had um the challenges you had to kind of get over to reassure investors that this would be a good opportunity yeah i got to a point where i was actually loving the questions because as you get and it sounds really kind of like goody too shoesy to say that but i mean it because as you kind of get used to answering those questions it actually improves each presentation so um because you're anticipating the questions that someone might have and you're already addressing them before they have them um, so we got, you know, we got questions around um, retention lever. So as a subscription business, what are we doing to improve the lifetime value of a customer? Um, we got questions around, yeah, also acquisition, um, because we hadn't really spent any money on acquisition to date, but, you know, how are we accounting to kind of scale acquisition um, with the raise? But um, I would say probably retention rates um, were the number one question that we were getting. Mm. Um, understanding kind of how, because a baby's, you know, it's a finite period of time, yeah. how are we going to address that, that mm. issue? Um, and it's something that we're fully aware of and um, want to keep solving problems for parents as their children age. Mm. So um, just presenting a really clear plan and a roadmap of where we're going mm. um, usually helped to assuage those fears. Did you, did you find that you were, um, speaking to a good mix of male and female investors or was it more men kind of what was the blend it's a good question um definitely more men mm. i mean definitely more men um women were an easier conversation but in the end we ended up raising mostly for men yeah that's quite interesting i mean especially as a business which is obviously founded by a woman um i mean it's it's not a kind of I don't know whether you would call yourself a female-centric business, maybe not, but did you, did you get different kind of questions from the male investors or did you not see a difference? Um, I definitely would leave conversations with male investors sometimes feeling like a lot more defeated and deflated um, to be quite, <laughs> to speak quite stereotypically. I think there was a lot more questions from male investors around the kind of branding strategy that we had to date which I mean always made me laugh a little bit because of course there'd been no real brand strategy it was just mm. my friend doing the logo um, and a lot of questions are kind of the targeting the fact that this was a product that's, that is called Monome and you know why are you targeting women and that always got my back up a little bit because you know women do hold the buying power in 98% of households in the UK, you know, of, of heterosexual couple households in the UK, two parents. So there's a real business explanation for why we would target women. Um, and then of course we're one year plus into our story. Like there's no, we're scratching the surface of what we can do. So it was, there's a strategy behind, you know, who we're targeting at what time. And I think that kind of assumption that, you know, this, those kinds of questions always got me a bit irritable. Yeah, that's quite interesting, isn't it? I suppose it's a bit like, I'm thinking about like Papa John's pizza, you know, nobody says, hey, how come you've got a, a, a name, you know, there's a man's name, are you only targeting people, male, men who eat pizza? I mean, it's not, it kind of, I don't know. That's quite interesting though, isn't it? That you were questioning that. Did you find it hard to deal with that at first? Did you become more familiar with how to deal with that? Definitely the first time I answered it, I felt very defensive. And then, yeah, it got to a point where, we, I mean, you still don't get that question that often, but when it does come up or someone does explain it, I am able to feel a lot more confident about how to answer it. And again, I think that's why I was saying, like, I actually like questions because 
you begin to anticipate problems um, and you kind of include those answers into your like, lexicon of things that you use yeah. in a presentation. That's right. The more you can kind of kick the tires, you know, and, and, and flush out those difficult questions in advance, the better. I mean, sometimes it can be quite good to have conversations with investors that you're are not on the top of your list at the start so that you get used to dealing with the questions then by the time you speak to your ideal investors you've got it down pat you know yeah <laughs> so that's a good strategy um we probably should have followed that <laughs> yeah as you say kind of it's 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 good that you had your um your husband isn't it by your side who's got lots of experience as a as a founder was he helpful during that process for you he was. In the end, we actually stopped taking meetings at the same time. I felt like we kind of ended up splitting off our list of um, potential people to speak with. And we've ended up basically each bringing half of our investor table to the, which worked out really well. Um, but he was a real, really good resource. I think just observing the way that he was handling these pitch conversations versus how I was and, and how he answers questions and how he, you know, just how the male brain works. I think getting that because I do still believe that investing in, I'm sorry, raising money requires a very male energy. It requires a kind of flipping what, at least for me, feels natural as, as someone who's been socialized as, as a girl and then a woman in this world. So it, I, I learned a lot from watching him, I would mm -hmm. say, and that helped me in, in leadings down the line. Yeah, that's fascinating, isn't it? That it, I mean, I think you're right. It, there is still such a male energy, but and we have a lot to learn from that male energy, but also it works both ways. I think investors could learn more about the female energy so that we meet in the middle. <laughs> no, hundred percent. And I do think that's a huge opportunity. Um, you know, for, if we're going to talk about getting more women investors and more women, more investment into women, hmm. um, women founded businesses, then there needs to be a, a level of understanding of kind of the, the differences. Cause I, I do believe that there are some, you know, very fundamental differences. Very fundamental. When, you know, investors are from Mars and <laughs> from Venus or something like that. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's communication, isn't it? But I, I love the way you talk about energy because it's not just about the words you say, but it's about how you come across the cadence of your narrative. All of that. It's it's very different, isn't it, for women? Interesting. So, yeah. what about? I mean, I, I mean, I know another big challenge for all founders when they're raising, and I'm, I'm sure it was no different from you. For you, is how you manage your stress levels whilst on, you're on this roller coaster, and how you get your mindset really strong. What did you do, Sophie, to, to kind of keep yourself oh, sane? Process. <laughs> I mean, it was just a crazy process because on top of that, we were like in lockdown. Our daughter wasn't yet back at nursery. Um, it was just a period of insane growth for the business. So the whole, I was also in my first trimester being pregnant. So it was just a very roller coaster experience. Um, but I would say, yeah, just being really strict with my time. I think um, I've really benefited from mentorship and from women coaching me. And that was one of the best sort of sessions I've had with someone who's been a real support was sitting with me and breaking down the 24 hours in a day of kind of what am I doing in those 20, cause you can look at a day and be like, I have no time. But actually, if you say, you know, I'm sleeping seven hours, I'm exercising 30 minutes, I'm spending, you know, two hours in the morning with my daughter and we're, you start to see that there's actually a lot of time in the day to play with. Mm. Um, so even just that exercise was hugely helpful. 
Um, and I still come back to that um, to schedule everything in because it actually, yeah, just huge weight off your chest when you can do that. Great. That's a great idea. I love that. I mean, you're right. There's always time to do things that are a priority if you, if you really look at it, if you really look at it. Um, and the thing about fundraising, isn't it, is if often if you don't make time for the fundraising piece, you won't raise the money you need and then your business potentially may, may fail. So actually it has to be given a priority. But I don't think it should be a priority above your children anyway, that's for sure. Or your sleep. Yeah, no, definitely not. Um, but again, I do think that was a benefit in a way of the lockdown because we're talking about Zoom calls versus, you know, traveling anywhere to have an in-person meeting, which helped a lot. Um, but also, yeah, taking ownership of my time, you know, if an investor suggested the time that didn't work, then changing that time, you know, also making, kind of taking ownership of my own schedule and not just um, accommodating for everyone else. Um, or having certain days that I would take investor meetings and other days that were purely focusing on the business. Um, you find that, you know, just because you can't take a meeting on a Tuesday doesn't mean that it won't be a good meeting on the next day that they can meet. Absolutely. And I think part of that is about taking and knowing what your own power is, you know, knowing what your own agency is. And us female founders not going into this thinking, oh my God, the investors have all the power. I have to drop everything, whatever they need, because it's not true. They, they are looking for great investments and they, you know, there's something, there's a lot in this for them as well as for you. Absolutely. I think that's, that's, I mean, that's spot on. It's, it's about that kind of keeping your, your keeping your power. <laughs> power. Yeah. I got power. <laughs> do you think having done all these uh, meetings over zoom, do you, feel that you lost out on anything by not meeting people in person or actually did you find it effective in some ways I mean it depends for certain investors I do wish we'd had the opportunity to sort of spend a bit more time in person together um, so some of our investors we know really well um, there are people that we've gotten to know kind of over the course of that year that I was laying the groundwork and having meetings with people and um, with other investors, they, it was so quick over the line that we're still getting to know them. <laughs> we're still kind of, if there's a little bit of awkwardness because we're essentially still strangers. Um, so, and I, we were really clear that we don't want, you know, just dumb money. We want people who really have um, experience with, with startups who have experience you know, operationally or with marketing, whatever it might be. Um, so we've got some really amazing investors on board and now it's this kind of period of getting to know each other, which yeah. maybe wouldn't, Exists. doing the due diligence after you've done the deal <laughs> but you've got what sort of 10 15 investors so that's quite an that's quite a quite a you know a nice what well, it's, it's a reasonably large set of investors will they all be sitting on your board or uh, how are you going to st structure your community um, and dealing no, yeah so we've um they're not all on our board at all we're um we're still building out our board um and for the most part yeah, we've got one or two investors who are on our board. But yeah, they're the ones that you want to make sure are absolutely the right people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're well known to us before. <laughs> if you could go back in time, Sophie, and, and do anything differently about with this campaign, would you do all the same again or would you, would you, do, would you change anything? I think it's hard to say because on one hand I'm like oh I would have given more time but I think the more time element is that period in which you are kind of having bad meetings or making mistakes or you know not knowing answers to questions and um, and then being able to take what you've learned from that sort of 
worst performing part of the fundraise to then go out to the kind of higher profile people that you might want to be targeting. Um, so in that sense, sometimes I'm like, oh, I wish we hadn't done it so rushed, but it felt quite rushed at least. Um, but, you know, we had a really successful fundraise and it was its own process and, and we learned a lot and the next raise will bring its own set of, <laughs> of challenges and, and bringing those learnings as well. So, yeah, I, I suppose maybe time, you know, one can always use more time. But, mm. but yeah, it's, um, it's interesting. You're, you're already talking about the next raise. I mean, it's like a never ending thing, isn't it really? For many founders is being on that fundraising path. What's, what are your thoughts on when you might need to do another raise? Um, we're looking to do another raise, probably open it up in the next year. Um, so that will just give us, a, again, kind of wanting a, a longer runway in terms of not being feeling so strapped for cash when we start the next raise. Um, but again, it just, yeah, it, I never really understood it. I would say going into this, I was like, oh, you know, why raise money at all? <laughs> but you've, if you've got a certain scale to your ambition, then, then you need the money to, to get there. Um, so we're raising as you know sustainable business as we can on really good foundations. Um, but to match the scale of our dreams, we're going to need to raise again. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Back out, back out there. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, you've done it once, you know, what's involved now. And, um, so hopefully it will be a smooth process again for you. So do you have any um, kind of top advice for the female founders that are listening for, you know, in terms of how they should approach a, fundra a fundraise, anything that you'd like to pass on to those who follow? I think I very much under, or I suppose I've benefited from the most with the fundraise and something that I'm continuing to, to work on is that kind of self-development. Um, I know I've touched on it before, talking about like the male energy and learning from my husband, how much is actually just learnable in raising money. It's not, you know, I always thought that raising investment was the sort of validation. If you have a good business and you've got customers who love what you're doing, you don't, the, you know, the investment isn't the validation. It's just what you need. So it's sort of working on yourself and working on your focus and your targets to actually have that the successful conversations that you need um so yeah I, I definitely say that kind of get finding a good mentor finding a good coach and there's you know so many like yourself um, who can who can really help guide you and give you that kind of structure or um yeah just kind of support because that personal side of it is in a lot of ways the biggest obstacle if you've got um a business that's you know really worth something yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, you can have a fantastic business, but if you're, if you don't have the kind of skills and the confidence to, to be able to run a, a great fundraising round, it's kind of irrelevant. <laughs> and and yeah. it's, you know, 90% of it is, is mindset and how you personally approach it, I think. So good advice, which I totally agree with, Sophie. <laughs> I can't agree with it anymore. No, I definitely, I, I don't think I fully understood how important the mindset work is until, yeah, I, I went through it and I saw how much easier some of these conversations were going for my husband mm. and we're selling the same business, you know, we're, it's the same opportunity. It's just a question of how we're presenting the opportunity. And, and I think it's not, you know, we're not talking about, you know, any kind of smoke and mirrors. It's genuinely just how are you expressing very simple facts differently? And that's because 
as women, at least I feel like, yeah, you can raise to say things about numbers differently than a male has. You can go back to that conversation about asking for a raise from your boss. It's much easier for men to do and it's a very similar situation. Yeah. We've got, I mean, thousands of years of conditioning that we have to <laughs> It's quite hard work. Yeah. So I guess you must be busy um, spending all that lovely money that you've raised. <laughs> <laughs> trying not to spend it all in one um it's nice to be able to put plans into motion and to see these plans start to bear some fruit already um but it it's a different it feels like it's yeah it's a different phase for the business um wanting to make sure we're now doing right not just by you know myself and our customers but also you've got investors now um so making sure that we're really acting responsibly and, and making the right decisions is a whole other yeah. level the next the next suite of problems that you have to solve yeah. isn't it yes unfortunately when you raise money it doesn't necessarily mean that all your problems are over <laughs> but that's really exciting it is amazing once you can you know you have the firepower to go out there and, and really make it happen super exciting and what what um are we going to be seeing any anything new or different from mama made or is it really about focusing on building your customer base in the next year or so? So yeah, we're really focused on growth, um, but to that end, we are making a lot of improvements to our website, to our products, um, and to our own processes that will help us scale. Um, so it's really just, yeah, a matter of, again, as I was saying, like perfection was never never the goal around here. So now using some of this money to, to refine some areas that um, really are, you know, would benefit from that and focusing on growth. Yeah, fantastic. Well, I'm so excited for you. Well done for doing such an efficient round in <laughs> on Zoom. What an exemplary female founder you are. Well done. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. <laughs> pleasure. I look forward to seeing your success and um, hopefully catch up with you again in the future when you are a huge brand. Oh, that's, that's the hope. Thank, thank you. you. <laughs> thank you so much, Sophie. No, thank you, Julia. Thanks for following Fundraising Stories with Female Founders. This content is all provided to you for free. So if you've enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe so you never miss another one. Enter the Arena has helped hundreds of female founders fly through pre-raise and investment and onto the exponential growth of their business. Our first-hand experience, expert guidance and proven programs help female founders unleash the Wonder Woman inside. To see if we can help you do the same, head over to www.entertheArena.co.uk. I'm Julia Elliott-Brown and I look forward to talking with you soon.